and welcome to another Tim Talk podcast by Celtic Down Under. I'm your host, Jared, and joining me on this podcast is Brian Dignan from the Celtic State of Mind podcast. How are you doing, Brian? I'm great, mate. I'm top of the world. Um, very grateful to be here chatting to you today. Uh, it's good to have you on. Thanks for uh, getting involved. Well, uh, really enjoying doing these Tim Talk podcasts, so uh, thanks for giving up some of your time to have a chat with me. Yeah, my absolute pleasure, mate. It's always, always great to talk about Celtic. Of course it is. I think um, yeah, my wife, before she goes to me, oh, you got a girlfriend's name? I said, yeah, of course, Celtic. That's what I've got to go do now. Come on, rush, rush, got to go. So that's just how that's just how it is. And pretty much all Celtic fans, households, or well, that's what I assume anyway, we're all a bit mad. So it's good to have a chat about it. So, yeah, um, sorry, carry on. I was going to say, we'll just start off with my usual first question on these Tim Talk podcasts because – as I've said to you, it's like me being an Australian, I go to a CSC, and the first thing you get asked is, oh, nice to meet you, Jared. So how did you become a Celtic fan? So for that reason, Brian, how did you become a Celtic fan? It's interesting. I was having to think about this earlier, and, and the obvious answer is, you know, um, the school I went to, most of the guys at school were, were Celtic fans. My mother was a Celtic fan. She's not, not a huge football fan, but... Um, in Glasgow, Celtic was a sort of—you were almost just part of Celtic. It was like a community thing. It was a—it was almost an ideal more than just a footballing thing. So, you—the first question you got asked in Glasgow when you met someone new was, "What team do you support?" And it was either Celtic or at the time Rangers. And um, so you were in one camp or the other. So I was in the, the Celtic camp, and then as I got a little older and started enjoying football more and understanding it more. You just you got to love the team, the colours, the personalities, the style of football, and then as I got a bit older and really looked at the history of it, it really filled me with pride that I was a fan and a part of such an amazing club, a club with such a beautiful history of helping you know those less fortunate, you know, built on charity with that strong ethos of community and that idea of a club for everyone, and that's something that's close to my heart is is that, you know, everyone's equal, everyone's important and no one should be sort of, I don't know, not selected because of some part of their life. So I, those sort of charitable ethos and community ethos behind the club was something that I always admired and it's um, it's something that I actually live down south now. I live sort of southwest of England and um, whenever I chat to people and they ask me, team do support? And I say Celtic and I explain why and I love it. I love explaining why. I love talking about the club and not just in a football sense, but what the club represents to me and so many others. Oh, it's the way of life and, you know, we've got such a wide-ranging supporter base all across the world and, yeah, a lot of us are all of the same mindset. So it's, um, yeah, just really good to um, yeah, be a Celtic fan and especially with you touching on it like that, it's when you explain it to other people who aren't Celtic fans and they go, really? That's how your club was founded? It's suddenly... Any misconceptions out about the club, it suddenly just like makes them back up and go, oh, yeah, okay, it's more than football. So it's just great seeing their reactions whenever that happens. Yeah, and I tell you an amazing thing as well, actually. So my uh, soon-to-be wife is Irish, but she was born in Ireland and raised in England. And um, so she didn't know anything about Celtic, doesn't not interested in sports of any kind. But when I met some of the in-laws and um they were like, oh, you're a Celtic fan? I was like, yeah. And then suddenly we sort of knew what each other was about. We sort of 
could trade stories, they sort of talk about things and it's just that amazing connection that I love so much and yeah, there's just always that, I don't know, bit of substance about the club that, that I don't think you can ever beat. It's unmatched anywhere. Maybe Barcelona is the only club with such, such a sort of, um, sort of, it's a way of life as well as a club. That's probably the only comparable club in the world, I think. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you on that. They're the only one I could think of off the top of my head. It's probably if you gave me, you know, 24 hours to have a good think and do some research, I could probably find one or two more. But yeah, us and Barcelona are cut from the same sort of cloth. So it's, uh, it's a good thing there. So we'll um, get on to something else that we were just discussing off air before we started recording. So how do you think Ange's doing as a manager? Wow. Um, it's been incredible, hasn't he? Um, and again, I... I I'm a bit of a football romanticist and I, I look at the things and I just think Ange coming in and one of my favourite things about him was not just what he's brought as a manager but what he's brought as a man. He's a real statesman for the club, the way he speaks about life, about you know motivations, about treating people the right way. It's, it's quite incredible and it's hard to imagine someone more suited to the club who you know was so far away and so uninvolved with the club. It's like, it's like he was made to be Celtic manager. He's got that same ethos. Then when you add to that, his regard for attacking football, exciting football, exciting players, uh, I, I just find him, it's just a perfect match and it's worked exceptionally well thus far. I, um, I'd i said on the, the Celtic State of Mind podcast that at the start of the season when Ange came in, I was very excited because I, I saw how his teams had played just not before he was announced, but doing a bit of research. Um, and I saw some interviews and I thought, this guy's got something about him. I, I, I didn't think we would have won the league last year, if I'm honest. I thought, you know, historically it's taken him a year or two to sort of get going, but then has a, a sort of long, consistent run of success. And I felt that may be mirrored at Celtic. So I was delighted to be wrong. Um, and I think it's just, I think the fact that he's 57 now, He's been a manager for like 26 years and he still talks about how much he has to learn and improve. And if you're a player and you're hearing that for your boss, you can't help but want to improve. And it's the fact that, you know, we're heading into the Champions League this year and I know he's going to say, right, we're playing Real Madrid in the Champions League. Let's beat Real Madrid in the Champions League. You know, let's win every game. Let's go at it. We're Celtic Football Club. We don't need to back down. We don't need to, you know, cower before anyone. And look, Jad, we're going to get a few black eyes along the way, but that's not what it's about. You know, it's about learning and it's about adapting and about getting better. And it's about never stopping, as Anne says. And, and I just think that the, as a man and as a manager, he's been an incredible addition to Celtic's history now. It's funny you say that about a few black eyes or whatever, and, you know, he'll want to go and beat Real Madrid because i got a nice little story for you. Way back in, like, 97, 98, his manager at South Melbourne in the old NSL won the league, won through as Oceania champions to go to the Club World Cup. And who did his team draw? Man United, the team that had just won with Beckham and all those guys. And um, yeah, they went out and had a fair crack at it. And it was, I think it was, if my memory's right, I think it was only one goal margin at the end of the game. And they actually went out there and full on did not back down. They had a fair income crack at him. So it was. Um, yeah, he's been that way since when I was first starting watching him back in the 90s. So as you said, like he's a statesman and I was sitting there going, I didn't, like 
I knew Ange would win the league, but I half expected if we're going to win the league, we'd do it in the second season, which is yeah. this season coming up. But then you hear Ange speak and he said last season was like two seasons in one. So it was pre-January post. So I'm I'm excited for it. It's um it's happy days and yeah, also what you said about the way he talks and he's one doing constant improvement. You hear Kelmack in the media during the week and he's out there talking about constant improvement. He's still got more to learn that as well. And it's, you know, it's the ethos and, you know, what's important to Ange is rubbing off on everyone. If you've got the, the gaffer and the captain speaking the same way, then that's the club culture. And culture, I'm so glad you said culture because that's another thing that I, I was, when Neil Lennon left and it was a bit of a disaster his last season, um, although it wouldn't tarnish his legacy in my opinion but it was a bit of a disaster and there was a culture of people not wanting to be there you know training wasn't up to par people were fed up and one of the things that Ange said which is another it's like reason 1040 why I love Ange Postacoglu is because he said he doesn't hire players he hires people and he loves that you know the dynamic the type of human he wants at the club the type of person he wants at the club and that's someone like Calmack like all these guys came in, and that's why I think they jail so quickly. And that's that's genius in its own way to really identify how a group's going to merge together, how they're going to get on together, how they're going to encourage each other to work hard, challenge each other, be competitive without, you know, spitting the dummy or, you know, throwing in the towel. So I think that's a really underestimated part of management. And he's instilled a culture so quickly. And I don't know, excuse my ignorance, but... As far as I'm aware, this is the most games he's ever played and managed in a season, I think. Yeah, it would be. The Australian and Japanese leagues are both shorter, aren't they? Or there's less games. The Australian league definitely is. He's probably done the equivalent of two A-league seasons in one year at Celtic. Yeah, I think that's the same with the J-league. The J-league's not as short, but it is. I think it's about 36 games or something like that, where our game, our league's 27 or 28 plus finals. So it's, it's amazing even to consider that he really squeezed two, two league seasons into one, according to him. He's yeah. also managed, you know, he came there single-handedly, recruited all these players, changed the structure behind the scenes and managed more games than he's ever managed before and still won two trophies. It's, it's I don't think it can be underestimated. Um, and it's great as well. It's great to see that the, the excitement in the Australian media. You know, I, I love the... The, the passion and the you can see how much how much more relaxed he is when he talks to you guys than sometimes he does with the Scottish media who in general are great um, and it's just wonderful to see that engagement and that's an extra profile as well so it's you, don't really tell, you don't have to tell me about the Aussie media I'm loving actually being able to find a lot more Celtic content over here than having to go fishing and look at all the red top red top newspapers and stuff like that online now over in Scotland so yeah it's great but um, yeah, the way the thing with Ange when he, he just seems more relaxed talking to our guys, and it's probably because you know it's the same sort of culture he knows and trusts a lot of the people he's talking to a lot more. Um, but the other thing that you just touched on was about the Ange changing the structure behind the scenes. So, it ties me into the next thing I wanted to ask you. So, what's your take on the club structure and what do you think is going well? What do you think needs to improve? So this is a bit of a bugbear of mine. This is something that I've been harping on about for, for quite a few years, actually. Um, so I think the club should be run similar to the way Dortmund 
Brentford, Leipzig, Salzburg, those type of clubs are run, where you've got a continuity from academy to first team. What I mean by that is you've got a style of play that you stick with, you recruit players of a certain mode that fit that style, you've got all the best staff, you know, data analysts, recruitment, you've got someone overseeing all that, and then the coach can kind of not come and go, but even if the coach leaves, the club ethos, the style, the system is still pretty much the same. You saw it with uh, Jurgen Klopp's a great example of that. Um, you know, <clears throat> and then Tuchel at Chelsea, they came that from that system. Um, and the clubs they managed when they left, the clubs didn't crumble and fall apart and go back 10 years. They sort of carried on because they had that. So we look at Celtic at the moment, I feel like and just sort of bringing that in. So the academy players that are there, I'm not sure. I think they need a bit of recruitment at academy level, but they're playing a similar way to the first team. So if there's an injury crisis, if there's something goes wrong, in theory they can step straight in. He's also got Mark Lowell, who is head of recruitment and scouting for the City Group, which is obviously huge. And to get him, I think it's a big coup, and I think it's actually a really good move for the club. It's been a bit of, a bit controversial because he's Peter Lowell's son, but I, I think it's a great move. I think he'll sort of be that overseer and help with that recruitment. Um, I think we've got we've got the data analyst from Benfica, I think. Ortega, the guy's name is. We've got um, Anton McElhin from who was Tottenham's fitness coach. Um, he's our head of sports science. So you can see he's put these things in place to give the players the best chance to be the best they can be. And it's sort of modernised the club almost on the sly. He's kind of done it in the background just gradually. And the fact he's bringing um, Harry Kuehl and he's also looking at more sort of data positions and analyst roles recruiting this summer. It shows that you know the club's getting up to speed. You know, Celtic have been a sort of massive club but ran a little bit analogue in a digital world at times. Really on that, Brian, because what you're saying there is I think we've spent, I agree with everything you're saying, and I think where he's been clever is in the last season, a lot of players left, right? So we reduced our wage bill. Then you got a couple of big earners like Biton and Rogic moving on, reduce your wage bill. If we were spending $60 million on player wages, and you look at a club like Ajax only paying 40-something, 40 $40, 45000000 a year, and they're doing well in the Champions League, there's that $15 million that's allocated wrong. I'd rather put that into the back-of-house stuff so you've got your sports scientists, you've got your, your recruiting, you've got all the stuff you're talking about there, and you back them and you give them not just the main man but a couple of support staff to do that and grow the back-of-house thing, and then that's going to set your club up long-term and the structure. So spot on with what you're saying. I'll go back to you now. I just wanted to throw my two cents worth in there before I forgot it. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the way Saudi has to – has to thrive and survive and you know I hope Angie's there for a very long time but at some point it won't be and what we need is if he leaves when Brendan Rodgers left for example he took everything from the back of the house and to be fair he sort of um, employed most of it but he took all that away all that modernisation and it sets back years I think and even though Neil Lennon came back and done well at the time initially you could see there was a real backstep and Andrew sort of now, again, in that season, sort of bringing it up. One thing that's interesting as well, and I agree with you about the back of house, I would invest in that more. Because if you're investing in really strong recruitment and scouting, you don't have to spend big to get the players in that match the system. 
You know what I mean? So if you're, if you're, so we've long had this idea of signing project players where we get these younger guys in and they're good players and then we try and set them on for a profit. And I said it was like, you know, you're just throwing throwing at the wall and hope something sticks. Angie's actually still working in that system, but he's just doing it better than anyone else has. Because the players he's signing, they're all cheap. They're from unfashionable leagues. They're under a certain age and they fit the system. Now, that's the exact mode. If you consider, like, Rio Hatati, Matt O'Reilly, um, Juranovic, Joe Hart, all cost a combined, like, six million or something. I mean, that's madness. That's insane. When you think about it like that, and that's just good, solid scouting. And although Joe Hart's 35, he doesn't fit into the, the mould as such, but he experience was required in that position. Um, but it leaves me very, very hopeful for the future, and I just hope that the thing that he's put in place, that modernisation, you know, in 10, 15 years, we're really seeing the benefit of it continuing. 100% agree with you because I did the, did the maths just, okay, going back to when Rangers died to now, and you know those little one one to two million or to three million pound players that we signed just as attackers, right? There was we spent twenty six million pound on those players over that period, and didn't make hardly anything back on those. That's talking about guys like Colin Kazim Richards, Amado Baldi, Stefan Skepkovic, and it goes on. Timu Puki. There you go. You add all those guys together, and you're like, where? What's all this for? Like. Well, what that is, is that's an idea. That the idea behind that is actually sound as a business model. It's buy these guys in cheap, develop them, sell them to you know, clubs that have got a bigger budget. That's fine. A club really can um, sort of background the Celtic. That's quite a good business model. The problem is they weren't doing it right. Yeah. You know, it, it, they were just going, oh, that guy looks okay, let's sign him. Oh, that guy looks okay. They, there was no plan for, do they fit the system? Do they fit the culture? All the things we spoke about and just done well wasn't being done well before. Now, of course, you've got your Virgil van Dijk's, your Kieran Tierney's, etc. But that was almost by accident, not by design. And again, just sending 10 players to get one really good one and hope that subsidises uh, the, the value you get as offset against all these other players coming in. So is the right idea done wrong? And I think finally we're starting to get it. Thus far, we'll be getting it right because as we spoke about at the start, Angie's eye for a player has been incredible. There's so many guys just now. I mean, there's so many players over, you know, you think are some of your favourite players at Celtic. And already I can see three or four players in this team that are going to be people's favourite players. Like my missus, I mentioned earlier, she, um, she's usually jealous of Jota because I'm always talking about him. She thinks I've got a, a man crush on him. And, you know, I have a lot of that. Nothing wrong with that. Um I think he's incredible. I think Matt O'Reilly's going to be incredible. Furuhashi is, is already many players' favourites. You get Carter Vickers, who we just signed at the back. These are guys that could be club legends. Juranovic is my personal, one of my personal favourite players of the squad. So you, you can already see there's, there's something iconic building, I think, along the lines of the, the sort of Martin O'Neill era, where you had so many players that became iconic for the club in a relatively short space of time. It's funny you say that because we said on our pod, uh, when we're doing the season review and a few a while back, that this squad is just so likable. Yeah. Like you've had previous years, you've had a bunch of players in the team, and they're good players, but they're not. You, you don't really like them. And this squad, like, you, like this is players. Like to me, I'll I'll straight up. There's 
I was never really a massive fan back in the day of um, what's his name? He was, he was Ronnie's assistant manager. Um, back in the oh, John Collins. John Collins, never a fan of him. Yeah, he's not really. Um, what John, good player, but no, not. Was never a fan of him. Didn't didn't like him. Like couldn't care less when he left. And then you look at it now, and like the whole squad, it's like if players move on, you're like whatever. Like Chris Iyer's moved on. I'm like whatever. Go do what you need to do. But you look at this squad now, and it's like as you said, Carter Vickers, like him. You just go through them, and there's so many players that you just want to see do well, and you just want best for them. Because they just, it's just they get in the club, and I think it's probably Andrew's mindset a bit too. But it's rubbing off on them. It's making everyone just—they seem approachable. They seem like they want to be there for the right reasons, and you just like those players. So it's, yeah, it's just been really good, especially over the last twelve months. But I was going to ask you, how do you think the recruitment's been over the last twelve to eighteen months, and which what current players do you think will be moving on in the next six to twelve months? Because with the recruitment being the way it is now, I think the next step in the evolution into phase two will be we've got to get those guys out, like your Barkas who's gone on loan. You're a Yeti. You've got to clear those guys out so we can reduce that wage bill So then we and get some money in so then we can reinvest it again on top of the Champions League money. That's what I think. But I'd like to get your thoughts on, first of all, how you think the recruitment's been and who you think will, need to be, will be moving on. I think recruitment, as I say, I think you've got to say with maybe one or two exceptions, recruitment's been absolutely excellent under under Ange. It really has. I mean, and, and I'm so excited for those guys to get a full pre-season. Like Ariel Hitati, with a full pre-season, up to full fitness, rested, is going to be an exceptional player. Um, Kyogo Furuhashi, a full season. Can you remember? He was injured quite a lot of the season, as was Jack Marcus. You know, those those are two front men that are just, again, I think we're going to have a massive, massive role to play. Um, so I think recruitment's been really, really good. What's going to be interesting is, as you say, is how many players leave. So I think we still need a left-back. I think we need a centre-back. I think we need a sort of defensive midfielder. And I think we need a winger. And so that's like, you know, your four players or so, five players. Which seems a lot because you want to be first team ready. They want you know they got to come in and compete with the players already there. But if you consider you're going to likely lose, in my opinion, Liam Shaw, Urugidi, Soro, Ayeti, Barkas, they're going on loan. Probably Julian. Um, there's already been a few players released. Mikey Johnson, Karimoko Dumbelli, they might all go. So you know that's nine players just there. Aside from any other releases, they're going to get that wage bill down plus we'll get the Champions League money plus I think what we may do is similar to what we've done with Jota and Carter Vickers this, that season I think we may get players on loan with a buyout clause so that we actually don't pay for them for next season yeah. I think they'd be quite clever with that as well and we'll use that system well which they've, well, they've done well getting Carter Vickers Jota's keeping his all on tender hooks but it is looking likely he'll sign as well I say it's like putting them on, um, you know, store credit. That's the way I describe, I describe it. It's um, a good way to sign them though, because it, you know, try before you buy. And like, you look at the three guys we had, we had an agreement with um, Maeda straight up, 
that it was an obligation. So that that's fine. The other two guys have done well. And as you said, yeah, I agree with you on all those positions. Defensive midfielder, I think, is one that is underrated, especially with Biton moving on. Because we've got McCarthy, we've got Itaguchi there who could play that position. But then at Champions League, are they going to be up to that level? That's what my question is. Because I would like Callum McGregor not to play as a number six. I want to push him back into an eight because that's his natural position. We've got Turnbull. We've got um, we've got two tens. We've got Turnbull and we've got O'Reilly. We, we have Hatate and McGregor play in the eight spot. And then we have two guys playing the six, whether that's Souza and Itaguchi. Then we've got depth, which is what we need. And we've got options. We need a left. I think we need a left back, yes, but do a European quality one, like the way we did it right back with Juranovic. So he'll be someone Taylor's good enough for the league and he's improved a lot. But I think we need something above that for a Champions League. We need a left sided centre back. Kohut Akura is the ideal candidate because he can also play defensive midfielder if we need, but I think he's the ideal candidate there. And then Sean on our podcast uh this week said that I was like, do we need a third a third striker, especially if a Yeti moves on? And because I've been thinking in my head, Maeda is, is your winger. But he goes, no, Maeda is playing on the wing because that's his natural position, but he's also your third striker. If those guys are out, you'd put him at striker, so you'd need to bring in another guy to play on that left because otherwise you'd move Jodder across and then you've got a barter to go play on the right. So you've still got options. But yeah, The other thing is, remember, is a barter can play as a striker as well. Yeah. So if you had to, if you get a real crisis, he can move there. If you get desperate, yeah. so can Jamesy Forrest. So there you go. We've got yeah, options. Yeah, Forrest. Um, the other thing to remember as well is, if you look at the, the type of wingers we've got at the club just now, Maeda and Abada are quite similar. Yeah. And that they're not your traditional winger. They're almost more like a second striker coming in. So if you look at when Jota say on the left, if he's crossing, he's crossing uh, Kyogo and Abada. One, one front post, one runs back post. Yep. And, but the problem is, we don't really have another traditional style winger other than Jota. James Forrest is there, but, you know, I think he's winging down a little bit. I think he's more just for emergencies and maybe yeah. squad continuity. So you need another Jota light player yeah. who can sort of switch. So you've got Maeda, Jota, Abada, and X. So I, I totally agree with your colleague, I think, um, a left winger and a traditional sort of winger. Yeah, we were linked with the boy. I I can't remember how say, what his name is. The Norwegian guy that plays for Bodo Glimp. The left That's the fella. So we're linked with him. Apparently, he may be a good prospect, but apparently he's agreed a move to somewhere in Italy. I think it was or France maybe. or something. Yeah, come to Glasgow. We don't need to go to Italy or France. Come to Glasgow. That's better. It's more Stay fun. Where it's, come to sunny Glasgow. It's an upgrade on being up in the Arctic Circle. Yeah. You'll get a tan, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, it's um, yeah, but there's a guy I think could be a good potential young signing that you could put as that winger, but then you could get from the A League over here, which is Marco Tilio, who's thereabouts with the Australian national team. I think he'd be a good sort. He's reminds me of a slightly more technical version of our Daniel Arzani before he got, got injured. So he's one that I think we could come in and do a job, however. He's, you know, Melbourne City, so he's part of that city group. Mark Law will know all about him, that sort of thing. But 
My concern is if you bring him in as a 19 or 20-year-old winger, is he going to be clogging a spot that could be there for, say, an Owen Moffat coming through? If it's just going to be a backup striker as a fourth or fifth string winger, sorry, is is that a spot that you want to push someone like Owen Moffat into or you want to push like a Rocco Varda or something into to start bringing guys through from the Colts? Is that another way you look at it? Who knows? This was the conversation I had around the goalkeeping position. So we're apparently close to agreeing a deal for Seagrist. There was at Dundee United. He's a very good keeper. But my concern was, well, if you've got Toby Oluwayemi at the Colt level, who's highly rated, and you've got a goalkeeping position comes up, and instead of promoting him, you sign someone else, doesn't send a very strong message to the Colts. So that's the dilemma you're in. With the wingers, I think that I think you're right in principle. I think out the two you mentioned, Moffat and Vata, I think Vata's more likely to come in. I think he looks physically a bit more robust and a bit of height about him. He's technical, but he is only 17. And it's whether, you know, if Jota gets injured, is he going to start in the Champions League with Abada on the other side? Yeah, nah. That seems unlikely. And that's why I think at the moment we need to be signing players who are, aren't there for to be cover they're there to compete for a starting position and push the rest in. So you get two strong players for every position. Then the academy can sort of um, subsidise any squad gaps after that, but I think you need two strong. And there's no one in the academy at the moment, in my opinion, that is able to step up to that level. They can maybe cover in a domestic game. There's a guy, Dane Murray, who I'm a big fan of. Yeah, um, I think he could probably you know, play domestically fairly comfortably. But again, if there's an injury crisis, you can't start having a Champions League at this stage. So I think that's where we're at squad-wise. So I can see your point and I kind of agree. But I do think we need Champions League calibre reinforcements at the moment. Funny thing is, I just said that to be the devil's advocate because I agree with what you're saying as well. But you've got to, you've got to like, you know, say the whole thing and look at both sides of the argument. So... Hundred percent agree on that, but yeah, I want us to strengthen, and because if we strengthen four, this is what something that is going to sound odd. If we strengthen the team, we don't have to work for the Champions League. We don't have to worry about the league because if the team is strong enough to play at that level, then the league should take care of itself. Yeah, absolutely. Constantly doing squad fillers just as backups or whatever, then you're not. That's where situations happen where you know we don't qualify for Champions League year on year. So I'd rather do what you're saying, go and sign guys there and then worry about the rest after that. But with Toby, just quickly before you kick on to the next topic is I think Segrist coming in would actually make sense because I'm not a massive fan of Bain. I don't don't rate him. However, because if I okay, if you look at it now, if Hart got hurt and you're going into a Champions League game and you had to play, either put Bain in goal or Toby in goal, how would you feel? I'd put Toby in, but that's because I don't rate Bain either, really. Yeah. Um, so if you got Segrist or Toby, what would you do? Segrist. Yeah, Segrist because... Thing, I think you've got, ideally, I would have um, Hart, Segrist, Toby as my three keepers. Yep. And Bain. I, I don't... Listen, he's, he's a reliable... Reliable enough, but 
he doesn't form me any great confidence, and I don't think he organises our defence particularly well. So, but it's not it's not that I think uh, OIM is so good that he has to start. I just think out of all the academy graduates, if you're trying to, because we've the big problem keeping players, you know, Ben Dope, for example, has went to Liverpool, the guys the previous years went to Bayern Munich, etc. If we've got players at that club in the academy level, we, we genuinely think could be future first-teamers, they have to come in at some point. And if you've got an opportunity to put them in the squad and you sign someone else, they're going to leave. They have to. So you've got to be very... It's, it's, it's like a tricky a tricky line to walk. I understand um, what you're saying, and that ties into my next thing that I wanted to say, because for me, I think Toby would be... I don't. I wouldn't want to put him as the third third string keeper. You know why? I'd rather he goes out and does the Christie slash a buyer sort of route. And if Xander Clark, for instance, leaves St Johnson, go play there for a season, or go to Dundee United and play there on loan in our league. You're not going to play against us, but you're going to get experience in the league we're going to play, and that's actually going to help him bridge the gap between Colts level and first team for Celtic because he's going to be playing in the league against the same teams at the same grounds he'd be playing at in a year or two for us. I think that would probably be more beneficial for him in this particular case than being our third stringer sitting on the bench behind two other experienced keepers. Yep, I think that's a shout. I would agree with that. Generally speaking, I don't... Given how Ange plays, there's no other team in Scotland plays like him, right? So your outfield players, I don't see an awful lot point of them going on loan to other Scottish clubs. Because they're not going to play or train the way Angela's at Celtic. Yep. Our keeper's very, very different, right? He's Special not position. Yeah. So and if he goes to a club in Scotland, as you say, he's playing against that caliber opposition. He's playing and if he goes to a team like a St. Johnston, for example, he's going to be in action a lot. You know, he's, he's going to have to play in okay. well. the touches that he needs. Correct. And and so that's I think that's positive. So I think that's Keeper's probably the only position, I think, going and loan to Scotland. Another club in Scotland would benefit. Um, but outfield, I don't think it benefits especially because Ange's got such a, a by all accounts anyway, um, such an intense training regime with the players, yeah. such a high intensity, high level of fitness. If they leave Celtic, they go somewhere else, they're not going to come back. Peak condition to fit straight in there anyway. So now, Brian, we're going to get on to the um, the fun stuff for you because um, I know you you've got to get back to work in a little bit. So we'll uh, we'll just quickly crack on to this is the my my fun questions. So, who would be your all time favourite Celtic player other than Henrik Larsson, and why? It that's almost impossible to answer. I think just purely because. Rattle off a couple then if you want. Yeah, there, there's so many. i tell you the one that springs to mind that I think no one talks about enough. And uh, it's Nakamura. Zaki Nakamura. I think I always remember, and I'll always remember to the day I die, his goal against Man United, the free kick, when we, we beat Man United. I think he, he was such a graceful footballer. And I think at times he could be quiet during a game, but his touch was incredible. He was so clever. Um, he just said that sort of something special about him. Um, Boric as well for the same era, Big Arthur, the holy goalie. Just I loved his craziness as well as his ability. 
I think there's something nice about him. I tell you, one of my, my the players I liked the best, and it was actually because I got to know him a little bit, was uh, Scott McDonald, fellow Aussie. Um, and he was at Celtic not only because I think he was a bit of a surprise package during that, that same era under Strachan, but he's also one of the nicest guys alive as well. He was a, a great dude. So shout out to, to Scotty. Um, I, I mean, you could, could go for hours. You've got Neil Lennon, club legend, Scott Brown. Uh, currently, Callum McGregor's up there. Um, Tommy Burns, obviously. Everybody loves Van Hoydonk. There's, there's too many to go over, I, I think. But Nakamura is just that. I always like players that are really technically quite special. And he, for me, is someone that I think actually maybe a bit underrated. Well, that's going to make your next question a bit hard then because I always go, who's your all-time favourite? And then I'll go into who would be your all-time top five players that you've seen play for Celtic in your lifetime? And if you can't do that, make your all-time five-a-side team for Celtic that you've seen in your lifetime. So if you can do it that way. So if you want to go one keeper, one or two defenders, one or two midfielders, one or two strikers, whatever, and do it that way, if that'll make it a bit more... Yep, so you've got... So five a side team, you've got Boric and Goals, Van Dijk and Tierney at the back, obviously Larson up front, in midfield, Maravchik and Lennon. Nah, that's six players. Oh, shit. Um, I forget five out um, Or are you going to say I'm no key and just go and outscore everyone? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, if you get that, you get that outfield team, though, so we'll, we'll go again, we'll go Boric, Van Dijk, Lenin, Maravchik, Larson. Nice. There you go. Kieran Tierney's your, your sixth man on the bench. Happy days. All right. What would be some of the most memorable games that you have seen Celtic play and what's so memorable about them to you? Sky one or two if you want. So the, the one that always springs to mind, um, and I mentioned them earlier, um, was when Scott McDonald scored the winner against AC Milan at Parkhead. Last minute, um, I just I remember watching that game and AC Milan were champions at the time. And at that era, we just seemed unbeatable at Parkhead. We really seemed to force that sort of fortress Parkhead mentality. And against AC Milan, who were one of the best in the world at the time, it was just incredible to beat them. Now, of course, we went on to beat Barcelona under Lennon two one, but just the, the the way the game panned out, the fact that. The, the, that squad under Strachan, we got to the Champions League twice and it was a quite a limited squad, really. We had, you know, Stephen McManus, Gary Colwell as centre-halves, we had Paul Hartley, midfield, Barry Robson, Scott McDonald. These weren't household names and yet we went to the last 16 in Champions League twice and there's just something about that era I sort of love. So the AC Milan game, certainly. Um, the Manchester United um, Celtic away game we, we lost 3-2 Benny Graham-Heslink and Nakamura scored another free kick and the reason that's so memorable was because I went down and um, I was assured by a, a mate of mine that I had the ticket until I got there got to Old Trafford and he's like yeah we don't have tickets so the only ticket I could get was for the Man U end which would have been fine if I wasn't caked in green and white with like a big like Shamrock hat and you know I'd had a few drinks that day and I was just in a sea of red and we scored first and I remember like the crowd sort of turning and looking round at me and it was um 
it was a bit of an experience to say the least, but it was Sorry. Celebrate, celebrate you blow them kisses. What did you do? I, I celebrated the, when when Vinny Hessling scored. I jumped up, and then I, I was a lot calmer the second time we scored. To be fair, um, although I did hurl abuse at Ryan Giggs for diving, which didn't didn't uh, make me popular. Uh, you gotta love that sort of situation. Away days in the wrong end. Brilliant. Okay, last question for you, Brian. So, I'll set the situation for you. Celtic is owned by some sheik. Money's no issue. <clears throat> don't have to worry about wages. Don't have to worry about a transfer fee. Don't have to worry about, you know, work permits, anything. Okay? The situation is, that's what it is. Now, who would be the one player that you have seen play in your lifetime and wish that Celtic could have signed them and it's other than Messi and Ronaldo, who would that be? This is actually quite easy for me. Um, Andrea Pirlo. I just thought Andrea Pirlo was one of the best players ever to play football. I loved him. I just I love that position, that sort of um, deep line playmaker. I always yep. find it really fascinating. And I remember some playing um, against Scotland for Italy and against uh, Celtic for AC Milan, and it was just always in space. Never broke a sweat. He did the big long hair and it never looked out of place. He just never looked hassled. Time on the ball. Yeah. Oh man, the, the his passing range was incredible. And I just think if you had a, a guy like that at Celtic just picking up balls and pinging them over to your creative players, it just it's just incredible. He's just one of those players that again, as I say, I think I just always loved watching him. I always wished we had a player like him. Um, and as good as him. And um, so, yeah, undoubtedly, it'd be Angela Pirlo. Yeah, I think it's the first time he's been the answer for there. But that's why I love that question because it's like so many random people it could be. So it's uh, Andrew Pirlo, nice, it's a good selection. Funny thing is, you like that you're saying the deep line playmaker pinging balls out to the attackers. Andrew's teams over here always had that. So I'm hoping. If we sign this Vinicius, he's not just a guy who's going to go and put studs in the shins. He's actually got a bit of playmaking ability like that too, where he could do that. Because, yeah, at Melbourne Victory, he had Mark Milligan at Brisbane. He had some guy, I can't remember who it was. I know exactly what it looks like. I'm just having a mental blank because, you know, it's getting late. But, um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I'm hoping we get something like that as well because I know it won't be at PLO level, but I'm being realistic, but let's get someone in for that role. But, yeah. Happy days. So, unless you've got anything else you wanna you wanna add or give a shout out to there, where can people find you, Brian, on the social media and um, yeah, and on the Axon? Yeah, so um, you can find me on our Celtic State of Mind podcast um, every Wednesday, and occasional guest appearances on other days, uh, and on Twitter at Brian Degning. I'm the only Brian Degning in the world, which is a fact. Um, so I, I shouldn't be hard to find. Um, so yeah, hit me up on Twitter, Jared. It's be so grateful to come on and chat to you. It's um, it's really nice to to talk to our Aussie cousins, and it's been a real pleasure, mate. No worries. Thanks for coming on again. Appreciate it. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and um, how how. <laughs>